we find ourselves this morning in Acts chapter 24. And as you turn your Bibles there, I want you to remember that Paul has been through this crazy journey. The, the whole book of Acts has not been about Paul. Believe it or not, it seems like at this point it's all about Paul and what God's using him to do. But the, the big picture is that the book of Acts is really this, the continuation of what Jesus had begun to do and to teach in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is Luke's account, basically continued. And he's writing to his master, explaining and giving an orderly account of all the things that took place in the early church. So in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we kind of see the, the seed beginnings that started to sprout up like a little plant. And the, the church of God, the kingdom of God, doesn't grow like a skyscraper. There's not like so much, it's not like we're, you know, it doesn't pop up and grow overnight. There's, there's, it's little by little. And I don't know if you guys have ever grown a garden. Many of you in here are probably at least attempted. I know I attempted last year and I had a really good garden in Farmington. And then we came down here, we had to break up the soil. We had to plant the seed. And then it takes time as those plants grow you could stare at them all day long and it seems like nothing's happening. You know, why are we waiting so long? But it takes time because that plant, even though it doesn't look like it's growing, it actually is. And as it's growing, since we don't see explosive results, it can be easy to get discouraged. But as day by day, there's water, there's nutrients in the soil, and then before you know it, a couple months later, there's a full-grown plant that's come to maturity and there's fruit coming off of the branches. And so we need to keep that in mind when we, when we think about church and the fact that sometimes it seems like it's not really growing and nothing's really happening, but behind the scenes, there's all this foundational work that's going on in people's lives that no one will ever see. The foundation of a home is the most important part of it because it's what holds the structure up and keeps it from settling and falling over and blowing when the winds blow, but oftentimes we kind of take it for granted that it's there because somebody had to dig up the soil, they had to get down to the bedrock, they had to put in the concrete or the blocks or whatever, and if that doesn't happen, the house can easily be shaken. But if it does happen, that house will remain for many years. The home we live in is 100 years old. But if somebody wouldn't have taken the time to put in the basement, it wouldn't be able to stand still. But at the same time, it's not a part that anybody even looks at. It's kind of a less desirable piece. But if it's not there, everybody notices because the thing falls over. And so God, when he's building his church, he does this foundational work that sometimes we kind of despise because there's no noticeable results right away. And God has built this church. He started by dying on the cross for us, paying for our sins so that we could have a relationship with him, filling us with His Holy Spirit, empowering us to live the lives that He's called us to live, and then He uses us to affect other people. We're His messengers. And so He said there in Acts chapter 1, He says, I'm going to send you, you're going to, be, you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, and in Judea, which is the surrounding region, and to the ends of the earth. That's God's ripple effect plan. But it's going to start in one place. And so we've seen that through the book of Acts. We've seen they started in Jerusalem. They went to the region of Samaria. And they just expanded out like throwing a small pebble into a large lake that's got the flat water. You, you, you just throw that small pebble and what happens is that ring 
slowly goes out and out. And eventually, even though it might be very small by the time it gets there, it hits the sides of the lake and it has an effect. And so God's kingdom is being grown that way. And I love this because we're just seeing one story of one man who is bold enough to say, I'm going to trust the word of God and I'm going to do what he's told me to do and see what he does with my life. I'm going to invest in his kingdom as he empowers me to do that. And so Paul is giving his life literally for the Lord and he's found himself imprisoned. He's he's in captivity of the Roman government right now. Last week he was questioned by the governor Felix in Caesarea and he was questioned concerning, what have you done? And so they had called uh, the Ananias, the high priest, the elders and this, uh, this lawyer, Tertullus, who all testified against Paul. But they were not the original accusers of Paul. Paul was on trial for inciting a riot, and they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple mount where he was not supposed to be inside the court of the Jews. Now, he hadn't done this. He was falsely accused. But when he gets to trial before Felix, this is like his third time being questioned concerning these events. And everywhere he goes, they can't find that he's done anything wrong, but they don't let him go. So he gets to the governor Felix. He's questioned. Tertullus accuses, representing the Jews, accuses Paul of what he has done. And then after that, Paul gives his defense, if you will. And it's really, he says, look at my life. All these accusations they've given against me, none of them can be proven. Why am I still being tried for something I didn't do and they can't prove? And so Felix, we found last week, that kind of the result of that conversation, Felix, in verse 22 of chapter 24, it says, but when Felix heard these things, basically the accusations against him and then Paul's response, when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, we know that that's what they called the early Christians, those who followed the way, Jesus Christ. He adjourned the proceedings and he said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he basically doesn't make a decision. It's like indecision. You know, he, he just come to a standstill. Um, when Lysias, the commander, comes, we'll make a decision. And I wonder if maybe he was grasping at straws, trying to get from the commander, hey, what did you see happen? He needed another witness that might be able to give him some information because Felix wasn't there. So he commanded, verse 23, the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty or freedom and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. If you're in a Roman jail, they didn't feed you. They didn't provide for your needs. And so what would happen is if you had relatives or friends that really cared about you, if you were in jail, they would come and give you the food you need, give you a blanket. Paul later, when he's imprisoned in Rome, he actually writes to some of you know, Timothy and some of the others and says, hey, will you bring to me my parchments? Give me something to do. Give me, bring me my scriptures. I want to read them. And so that's how they would be provided for. They didn't have three hots and a cot. You know, they didn't have cable TV in jail. You did not want to be there. And if you got out, you didn't want to go back. It was bad. Now, Paul has uh, been given some concessions. Basically, Governor Felix knows that there's no lawful way to be punishing him. He keeps him captive, but he gives him freedom to move about. And he's able to talk to different people. 
and uh, his friends were able to come and see him. So verse 24 says, After some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he answered, Go away. He says, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Felix heard the testimony that you and I studied last week. If you don't remember what it was, for time's sake, I'm not going to read through it, but kind of backtrack in Acts chapter 24. Look what Paul had to say. He gave a very compelling statement about his faith in Christ and about righteousness. And, uh, and he defended himself by saying, hey, my accusers didn't even show up to this trial. That should speak to the fact that maybe they don't have anything really against me. They just want me dead, you know. But Paul uh, gave some very good arguments for the faith, and he actually appeals uh, in a couple chapters. He'll appeal to the different leaders that have an understanding of Judaism. And he knows that Felix understands Christianity because Felix has been the governor over Judea for the last six to seven years. He's seen these events of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ unfold before his very eyes. It was under his rule, under his purview, that these things took place. And so, this thing is not a, an old thing. These are recent events. People are talking about them still. And the church has no doubt been growing, and he's watched that. So, it says there that he reasoned with him concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And it says, as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, it says there that Felix was afraid. I find that interesting because who's on trial here? It's Paul. Paul's being put to trial because of accusations against him. Who's the judge? Felix. Felix is the one that's afraid. I don't know if you guys have ever gotten a ticket or had to go to court for something. I have. I got a careless and imprudent ticket one time. I was on the way back from Rolla where I went to school at. I was going home for the weekend. I was kind of excited. Had my little iPod out. And I was, you know, it wasn't back then you didn't play music off your phone. You had your, your iPod or your little MP3 player. Or I think I even had a, I had a CD player that I plugged in with the tape you know, the, the tape converter that you just, it's got a wire hanging out of the tape deck. And then it had a little, I had a CD with MP3s on it, like 700 of them, because it's 700 megabytes. And then it's spinning in there, but you can, I can't really, there's no screen where you get to pick exactly what song. You got to kind of fast forward through it. Well, as I'm doing that, of course, I'm not looking at the road. And naturally, I'm on Highway 44 going 75 miles an hour. You know, that's safe. And uh, I didn't have my cell phone to look at, but I found something, you know. I wasn't doing my makeup, but I was listening to Anyway, so I'm driving, and it was back when they were redoing all of 44 from St. Louis to Springfield. They were resurfacing, they were moving it, they were widening it, they were putting up different gates. They were just doing a lot of construction, and nobody likes to drive in construction. And uh, smart people, when they're driving in construction, they slow down, they pay more attention, not less. I wasn't doing that. I was being careless and imprudent. And uh, as I went in, I, I basically ended up rear-ending a guy because the traffic all of a sudden stopped. And I, when I looked up, I had already switched over to the lane where everybody's slowing down. I didn't know they were all stopped. 
So I'm slowing down as fast as I can. I didn't have a car with uh, analog brakes. I had a little Ford Focus. And as I was trying to slow down, I looked over. I actually did check my blind spot because I was going to get back out into the main lane. But it, there was a car there in my blind spot. Okay, well, hold on. Hit the brakes and hope we don't hit the car. You know, and then I rear-ended the truck. So I was going the speed limit to my recollection, but I, I don't know. So anyway, after I find out about all that, I'm out of car, I'm not going home for the weekend, they tow it back to Rolla, I go back to my dorm, I'm like, okay, now what? I get a little subpoena in the mail. Hey, uh, you've got an accusation against uh, you that you have a careless and imprudent ticket. You know, hey, I'm sorry about your car, but here's a ticket. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. You do what you do, right? So I get the ticket, I'm like, what am I going to do? So I go to court, it's like two, three months later, you know how justice you know, moves really quickly. About two, three months later, my car's finally fixed so I can go to court, praise the Lord for that. And I get there and I dress nice and I'm listening to all these trials. I've never been to the courthouse before and I've definitely never been to Phelps County Courthouse. And there, everybody in there has written a bad check. That's what they're all in there for. They've all written a bad check. And they're all pleading uh, nothing. They're basically saying, hey, I need time to get... They've had a subpoena, I'm sure. And they come in there like, I didn't know about this charge. I, I guess I need to get some counsel. And then they basically put it off for a little while, like Felix did. He's like, hey, I'll, I'll hear you on these things again. But what I did was I walked in there. I was like, well, if the officer says I was driving careless and prudent, then I plead guilty. And they were like, well, they didn't even know what to do with that. Everybody else was pleading not guilty. I said, I guess I did it. What, do you, I, what am I supposed to do? I can't argue with you. I don't have any like measurements of my brake. You know, I didn't do any of that. They did. They know. They've seen it all. So I pled guilty. And then because of that, they gave me some leniency. They're like, hey, you know, if you're going to plead guilty, you don't have a bad driving record. We'll give you a. The muffler's broke. You know, you had a, a moving violation. You know, it's not a moving violation. You, you had a bad muffler, which I don't know how you can do that legally, but that's what they do. And it saved me about probably 600 bucks, and I didn't have to get a lawyer or anything like that. And moved on. Paid the extra insurance for a while, you know, until I was about 21. And But uh, I forgot why I even told you that story. Felix, across the Oh, Felix was afraid. That's what I was going to say. If you're in that situation, you're afraid. You're afraid of the judgment because you're the one being judged. So Felix being the judge, he turns around and he's listening to Paul and all of a sudden it's like the tables are turned. Paul's judging Felix and Felix is like getting a little uncomfortable. He's shifting around in his seat. His wife's standing there. He's talking about righteousness and self-control and a little bit to know about Felix and Drusilla is that they're married but Drusilla basically was stolen from another dignitary from a different place. Drusilla was not Felix's original wife. This is his third marriage. He's living in an adulterous, from biblical standards, an adulterous relationship. And so he's starting to get a little uneasy because the testimony and what Paul's telling him about is making him remember that he lives an immoral life and that he's going to be accountable before God for this immoral life. That there's a judgment to come. That the things that we do in this body, in this flesh, during our time with the breath that God's given us, we will be judged for. And so he gets uneasy and he's afraid. To the believer, the thought of the coming judgment should be an encouragement to let God purify our lives. It should make us uncomfortable if we're living in sin.
to the non-believer, judgment should scare the literal hell out of you. And what I mean by that is in the best way possible, God uses that judgment, that idea that you're going to be accountable for everything you've done, to sober you up from the life that you're living and bring you to the realization that you need a Savior. And so God does that for us. He loves us enough to scare us. Not in a way where we're just completely blown away and we feel condemned, but so that we're convicted, which condemnation pushes you away from God. Conviction brings you close to God and say, Lord, help me. I have a lack and you have everything I need. And so Paul is testifying of righteousness, of self-control, and of the judgment to come. And it's convicted um, Felix. Now, a little note on Drusilla. I have it on my phone, so forgive me for that. But Drusilla was from the, the family of Herod. And because she was from the family of Herod, I wanted to give you kind of her lineage. You know, it, her, uh, uh, yeah, her, not her lineage so much, but kind of her heritage. The family she comes from, though she is a Jew, she's from a very ungodly family. Felix's wife, Drusilla, was Jewish. She was the great-granddaughter of a man by the name of Herod the Great. He was one of the former kings. Herod the Great had tried to kill Jesus years ago. Remember when we were reading the Christmas story, talking about how when the, the wise men came and they said, Hey, Herod, where's this king that was just born? Of course, Herod's like, I'm the king. Who? What are you talking about? He says, well, I, I don't know, but when you find him, why don't you let me know where he's at? Because I want to go worship him. He's really just trying to make sure somebody doesn't take his throne, right? So then, later we find out that because they don't come back and tell him, he gets angry and he says, he orders the death of all the infants in the land. And he has them killed and he has it carried out. So he tried to kill Jesus. So that's Herod the Great. That's her great-grandfather. Okay, her... She was also the great niece of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. Remember the Herod that was, he was having this big party. His uh, daughter basically comes in, her half-daughter. She comes in and she says, hey, um, I'm going to dance for you. She dances for the whole group. And he says, I will give you anything up to half the kingdom. What do you want? So she goes back to her mom, which is Herod's wife at that time. And they were in an adulterous relationship too. He had stole his brother's wife and that was now his wife. And she looked at his half-daughter, and said, uh, why don't you ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter? Because John the Baptist was kind of bold. He told Herod, hey, you think that you're right with God, but you're not. You're in an adulterous relationship, and it's not right. And so, basically, because of his fear of what men will think, well, he said, I'll give you anything you want. And then she goes, well, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he goes, uh, I'd say no, but everybody in here just heard me say I'd give you whatever you wanted. So because of the fear of man, he does something sinful. He has John the Baptist killed. So that's her great uncle, I guess. And then her own father was the Herod that had the apostle James put to death. And so she was not from a godly family. That's the point. Also, Felix, this governor we're talking about, was well acquainted with Christianity from having governed Judea and Samaria for six years. Felix had been, she, he had taken Drusilla from her former husband, the king of Amisa in the neighboring country of Syria. So she was Felix's third wife. So when Paul talked about righteousness, about self-control and the coming judgment, Felix must have been reminded and convicted about his moral, immoral life. And so I, I like that because we see that 
there's a reason Paul was talking about those three things. What, he wasn't just sharing about everything biblically. He was sharing about specifically, here's what God wants to deal with in your life. And he had the boldness to do it. And I love that about Paul because he's not so much concerned about his own safety. He desires that this man would receive Jesus Christ. And so his response, he was afraid and he answered, go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him. We find out his real motive of keeping Paul. He wants to get money out of it. You know, and I have a little note here. Felix knew he was guilty, but instead of receiving Christ, he delayed. He delayed making a decision. Rather, people think that if I delay a decision, I'm not making a decision. But when you delay receiving Jesus Christ, you're rejecting him. And uh, I also have another note that said, today is the acceptable day of salvation. Many people will hear about Jesus Christ, they'll put it off, but what we gotta realize is that sin is deceitfully wicked and our hearts are deceitfully wicked. So if God is convicting you of sin today as a believer, don't harden your heart against it, repent. Ask the Lord to change you. Ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, because tomorrow you might totally forget about it and then as a non-believer, if you know anybody that's a non-believer or if you think you're on the fence yourself, if you're convicted that you need a savior and you've never received him, the reality is you need to be careful because tomorrow you might totally forget how you feel today. You might not be convicted. When you sin, it's like taking your hand and putting it on a hot stove plate. You put your hand on a hot stove plate, what does it do? It burns you and you feel it. It's ultra sensitive. You're like, I just burned myself. But if you do it again after it heals, what happens? You feel it, but it's not as bad because there's scar tissue. It gets numb. You sear your conscience when you sin in the same way. When you sin, it's like sticking your conscience against a hot plate and it melts. It, it burns it. You feel it. You're convicted. You're like, I shouldn't be doing this. I need to get right with God. But then if you don't repent of it, you do it again you're less likely to be convicted and you kind of get used to it. You know, it's, you just run down that road and you just, you just make a smooth path and you, it becomes comfortable. All of a sudden, you're, not, you're used to it doing it. And so what we oftentimes neglect and we delay making a decision, Christ would say, don't delay, don't harden your heart. Receive Christ today. Ask him to forgive you today. Stay right with him. Keep a short account. And so... Felix has basically delayed a decision, and because of that, he's making a decision. Meanwhile, he also hoped that Paul would give him money, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. I like this little note. One commentator said, Felix wanted to talk about getting paid off. Paul wanted to discuss righteousness that he could receive today. That's the biggest payoff you and I can ever receive from the Lord, is his righteousness and to replace our lack of righteousness. So, he hoped he would give money. But after two years, it says that Portius Festus, another guy comes along, and he, ex he succeeds Felix. He becomes the new ruler. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, kind of as he's leaving office, he, uh, he left Paul bound. He left him in prison. The actual prisoner here is Felix. He's a prisoner to his sin. Paul is freer than any man that he's probably coming into contact with because he recognizes that if he makes a mistake, if he does something wrong, that God's going to take care of him. 
So in Acts chapter 25, verse 1, we begin, and we'll kind of end with this story here. We won't go too far. But it says, When Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Notice that vengeance is something that doesn't go away. It's something that kind of festers. It's been two years, and there are still a group of Jews so mad at Paul that they, they're still talking to the governor. Hey, why don't you send him to Jerusalem? We'll, we'll off him. We'll get rid of him. And I love what the governor says here because he's been told, hey, this Paul, he's not a good dude. We need to get rid of him. Uh, they're making sure that the next ruler understands the same things that they told the last one. But Festus answered, verse 4, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. He's got the responsibility for what's done with Paul since he's still bound. And so rather than just saying, well, I'll just trust what the last governor had to say, he wants to see for himself. He wants his accusers to come. He wants to try them all over again. It's like triple jeopardy. You know, we don't want to try somebody again who's already been basically said he's, he's not guilty, but he also knows that he's responsible for whatever decision gets made, so he wants to put him at trial again. Verse 6, And when he remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had, had come, excuse me, when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and they laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. That's the key part of that verse. They had all kinds of complaints against Paul, but because of his innocence, they couldn't prove them. Romans chapter 16 verse 19 says this. It says, be excellent at what is good and be innocent of evil. And in doing these two things, being excellent at what is good, being innocent of evil, he says the result of that is the God of peace will crush Satan underneath your feet. You will be able to defeat the enemies easier by having a righteous life, by shunning evil, than you will ever have if you try to defend yourself. Many people want to defend themselves, but the best defense is to submit to God, have a life that's lived, that's submitted to God and obeying Him, and then, as a result of that, you'll be able to resist the enemies that you have. You won't have to fight it on your own. The Lord, because of your life set apart following Him, He will be your defender. He will give you the testimony that can't be tried and found guilty. And so, I love that. Paul is able to say, it says there, that they could not prove these things. Verse 8, while he answered for himself, and this is what he said about himself. I wonder if any of us could say this if we were put to trial for something even that we didn't do. He says there, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. At all is kind of an inclusive verse. He includes everything. He says there, 
I haven't sinned against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. I haven't broken any laws at all. Remember I said, be excellent of what is good, be innocent of evil, and basically God's going to defend you. He's going to take care of you. Verse 9, but Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor, and he answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before uh, before me concerning these things? In other words, can we take this trial back to Jerusalem? I wonder if because he can't get anything against Paul, he's like, well, I could take him back to Jerusalem. We could be done with this whole deal. We can get rid of this big thorn in my side. Remember, he's already been sequestered by the people in Jerusalem. Hey, if you bring him down to Jerusalem, we'll take care of him. So I wonder if he's maybe trying to take the easy thing out. But Paul said, verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I'm an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. That's a bold statement right there. He's basically saying, if you can find some sort of offense I've made, I don't object to you having me put to death. I'm fine with that. I have a clear conscience. That's what he's told every one of them. He understood that he was right before God, and so he understood that if, if it was his time, it was his time. But that's a bold statement, right? To put your hands, to put your life into the very hands of somebody who could very well try to find an easy way to get rid of you. But I want to remind you where Paul's confidence comes from. So turn to the left, one chapter, or I guess two chapters, to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul's first trial before the Sanhedrin with the Roman guard, he had basically started a riot in the middle of the temple. He knew he was supposed to go there and testify to the Lord. He started a riot because of the way he handled it. He had also started an argument between the, the council of the Sanhedrin, talking about the resurrection in between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Nothing seemed to be going right. And it seems to me that Paul was discouraged. So he went back to his barracks. He's still captive. And the Lord Jesus meets him there, which leads me to believe that Paul was so distraught, he just went back and he weeped and he prayed before the Lord. He prayed. He sought the one who could defend him in this situation. He was the one that allowed him into the situation. He's the one that could get him out. Because it says there in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus himself speaking to Paul says, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me at Rome. I know you feel like you've screwed up, Paul, but guess what? I'm not done with you yet. I've still got purposes for you. And it reminds me of on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe I mentioned this last week and I hope I didn't. But Jesus was with his disciples. They had just spent the whole day serving. And he said to his disciples, let us get in the boat and go to the other side. When they got into the boat, they sailed, they went across the sea, and in the middle of the night, a storm comes up. And as the storm comes up, the boat's crashing all over the place. It's not a big boat. It's a boat probably the length or less than this sanctuary, from that wall to that wall. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And as this storm comes in, the wind's blowing, the waves are crashing, they start to panic. And that panic causes them to forget what Jesus said when they started the trip. What did Jesus say? Let us go to the other side. So they start asking Jesus, and he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. 
Do you not know that we're perishing out here? Did you bring us out here to perish? And Jesus looks at them and he says, have you no faith? Do you not trust me? And then he says, peace be still. And what stills? Is it the hearts of the men? Do they go, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, we trust you. No, the, the Sea of Galilee goes completely still and the storm stops. Creation obeys his command. We oftentimes doubt his command. The funny thing is, is that Paul is in the same situation. Paul is in a stormy sea and he's being put to trial for something he never did. And I bet you that he's banking on what Jesus said. He said, just like you testified with me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify with me in Rome. In Rome. I'm not done with you yet. We're going to make it to the other side. The boat's not going to sink and the storm's temporary. I love that. That's faith. Recognizing what God wants to do, realizing it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get there, and trusting God anyway. The boat won't sink because he's with us and the storm is only temporary. It's just a short time. So Paul, back there in chapter 25, he said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat with all confidence where I ought to be judged. Caesar is in Rome. He knows that's the end destination. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Take me to the man himself. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And so God is intricately weaving this story to the point where Paul will testify before a few more rulers before he ends up in Rome. He's sharing the gospel, not with just people, but with the rulers of the people. It would be like me going to trial and appealing to Obama, President Obama, saying, no, I am not going to sit and listen to this court. I want to go to the, the high guy himself, the one that's in charge of it all. He's getting to share the gospel with the president. And that's amazing because he's a prisoner. He's not some guy that has freedom. Billy Graham has shared the gospel and had many conversations with different rulers and different presidents at different times. And his son does the same thing. But how often are prisoners allowed to speak to the major rulers of nations? Hardly ever. They don't make it past the judge. The judge gets the final say. But Paul has been given this special position by the Lord himself. And so let me ask you this morning. What's God given you to do? And how are you handling it? Are you trusting him? Are you confident that he's going to be the one that's faithful to complete the work that he started? Or are you panicking and trying to figure out how in the world it's even possible? Don't doubt the boat won't sink. He's with you. And number two, the storm is temporary. He's going to bring it to completion. He's going to bring you through the storm. And on the other side, you're going to wonder why you ever worried in the first place. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to study your word. Thank you that it's not some dusty old book that doesn't pertain to us today, but that it's just as pertinent to our lives today as it was to the ones that wrote it, and the ones that read it the very first time. Thank you for being willing to breathe your life 
into a book that we can carry around with us. It has all things that pertain to life and godliness. It has all wisdom. It has all uh, instruction on life and godliness. And it has the ability to remind us from the other side um, that this life is temporary and that there will be a coming judgment. Lord, how ought we to live our lives knowing that at the end we will be accountable to what you've called us to do? Convict us, Lord. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Help us to trust you in the things that we're not learning yet to trust you in. And Lord, gain the glory from our lives. May our character reflect our God. We need you, Lord. We can't do it alone. So we just confess that we trust you. And though times we doubt, we recognize that you are the creator of heaven and earth. And uh, you are with us. You are Emmanuel. So Lord, we love you. And we pray that you would uh, be with us today. That you would strengthen us in our trust in you. And Lord, continue to pour your word into us as we uh, open it up every day. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.